0: but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And as is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers... They are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: Thanks very much, Becky. Let's uh, pray and ask God's help as we think about the passage today. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for week by week how, as we gather, uh, to praise you, to express our enjoyment of all that you have done for us, that you uh, are committed to speak to us, speak to us through the written word, uh, so that we might know the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit. What every one of us has had uh, different kinds of weeks, some have been good, some have been great, some have been hard, some have been discouraging. But we thank you that you are the God who speaks into each of our lives, no matter what point in our journey of faith we are at today, that you are committed to reveal yourself to us. So do that work now, we pray, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, uh, Tara and I were in England last week visiting uh, our son Duncan, and last Sunday we attended a city centre church in Leeds in the north part of England, a church called St. George's. The service was an encouragement to both of us as we were there. But one of the things from the service I reflected on afterwards uh, was how, in the, in the sermon, the preacher talked about silence and how the church can often be silent about certain subjects not wishing to address them Uh, for whatever reason. The taboo subjects uh, that often are avoided by churches, as mentioned in this sermon, were subjects such as sexuality and politics and money. Well, today we're going to break the silence on one of those topics. Not that we haven't addressed it before, but uh, today we're going to be thinking about money. Given that we're drawing our series on the church, our This Is Us series, uh, towards a close now, And as we're in the midst of our stewardship campaign, it seemed a good time to think again about what the church says about how we as Jesus' church should think about our finances. And we're on very solid ground to spend time thinking about money because the indisputable fact is that the scriptures have a great deal to say about money in various parts of the Bible, old and new. For example, if you were to just do a quick survey of how much Jesus addresses money and possessions as laid out uh, by the gospel writer Luke, even just in the first 12 chapters of that gospel, it turns out that it comes up nearly every single chapter. Just uh, run through this with me. Chapter 1, Mary's song, the Magnificat, mentions the rich and the poor. Chapter 3, John the Baptist commands tax collectors to stop extorting money from people. Chapter 4, Jesus comes and announces he has come to preach good news to the poor. Chapter 5, Matthew, the tax collector, leaves everything to follow Jesus. Chapter 6, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Chapter 7, John the Baptist is contrasted with those who live in luxury in king's palaces. Chapter 8, the seed of the word of the Lord gets choked out by riches. Chapter 9, disciples are said to leave everything to follow Jesus Chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer, Give Us Our Daily Bread. Chapter 12, the parable of the rich Fool. So that just as one example in one part of the Bible, Luke has a lot to say about money because Jesus has a lot to say about money and the Bible has a lot to say about money. Well, when we turn over to the letters of the Apostle Paul, we find that in his second letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote two of the most important chapters in the entire Bible on money and giving in chapters 8 and 9. Just to give a little bit of context, in chapter 7, Paul recounts how he had got extremely encouraging news from his co-worker Titus that the Corinthians had uh, actually received Paul's previous rebuke and admonition uh, well and had repented of their earlier opposition to Paul and his ministry. And now here in chapter 8, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians that Titus is going to be making a return journey to them, in particular to encourage them specifically with regard to their financial giving. And what Paul then does in this chapter is he lays out a sort of theological framework for why he hopes they will respond positively uh, to Titus's appeal when he, when he arrives. And as such, this therefore, I think, is a good chapter for us to be looking at today in the midst of our stewardship campaign. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It is this, that excellent giving in the church flows from right loving, which flows from a gospel-transformed heart. Excellent giving in the church flows from right loving, which flows from a gospel-transformed heart. So let's uh, see first how Paul gives the Corinthians an example of and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, the context here is that Paul had set up a charitable fund for the Christians in Jerusalem, as the church there had been dealing with poverty from the beginning of their, their existence. At the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul had asked the Christians in Corinth to take an offering each Sunday to go towards this fund. Later in in this letter, Paul seems to indicate that they had responded uh, well initially to that. However, in the 12 months that had since passed since the launch of the fund, their initial enthusiasm seems to have disappeared. So Paul spends two whole chapters of this letter seeking to motivate the Corinthians to raise the money that they had pledged. And here at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 8, he draws their attention. To the noteworthy example of, of the giving by the churches to their north in Macedonia. The example of the Macedonian churches' giving was indeed stunning. Here were churches that, they, that themselves were going through severe difficulties of their own, experiencing extreme, extreme poverty, and yet out of an overflowing joy, Paul says, they had given with rich generosity. But it was more than just that, Paul writes. They didn't just give as much as they were able. That's usually how we appeal to people to give when we're asking for, for money. Please give as you are able. They gave beyond their ability, Paul says. They begged with Paul to allow them to give to the churches in Jerusalem. Paul says to the Corinthian church, there's your example. You excel in, in so many things. Paul mentions their faith, their speech, their knowledge, their knowledge their earnestness, their love. He says you need to match your excellence in those areas with excellence in the grace of giving. It's interesting that Paul uses this word grace eight times in chapters 8 and 9 as he discusses our financial giving. The grace of giving. Not the burden of giving, but the grace of giving. That uh, The Macedonians considered the opportunity to give not only as a grace of through them by which other people were being helped, but also as a grace to them as they had been given the resources to help other members of Christ's church. And all of that, Paul says, brought joy to their lives. Back in the summer of 1994, Tara and I Spent 10 weeks in Cameroon in Africa working with Wycliffe Bible translators as part of our seminary course. We had many, many vivid memories of that time. Some were scary, some were funny, some were life changing, but one vivid recollection I have of our time there were the worship services in Cameroon. Most of the people there would be clothed in traditional uh, African dress, making it a very colorful experience, but What was somewhat strange was that with every song we sang, it felt as if if you'd closed your eyes and changed the accent somewhat, you could have been in a Presbyterian church in Scotland. That is, the missionaries who had travelled from Scotland to Cameroon had not only given the people the life-changing message of Jesus Christ, they had also brought with them their hymns and their metrical psalms both of which are great musically, but they, they just felt somewhat out of place in Bamenda and Abungabang, amongst other places we visited. However, there was one part of the service where we knew for sure that we were in Africa, that as the offering was announced, people started to get out of their seats and they started to sing, Sings of, songs of thanksgiving, songs of praise to God, but now singing in their own tongue. And then they started to dance, and they would dance up the aisle towards the front, bringing their offerings with them. It took quite a while, but no one seemed to be in any particular rush about it. But here was the most striking part of it to me. It was the one time in the service when I noticed that the congregants all seemed to smile. It was the time in the service where their smiling was most pronounced was when they, in the context of what we had discovered to be fairly deep poverty, they were giving their money in the offering. These Cameroonians understood the grace of giving. Now, you know, when Christians get into discussions about giving, it oftentimes sort of goes along this line of thought. We say, okay, Christians should give. We understand that. And then the question comes, well, how much should they give? And we say, well, the Old Testament minimum standard was, was a tithe, 10%. And, and so then we start to calculate how much that would be based on our salary. And that well, seems like a lot of money to us. And so we start looking for loopholes. Well, wait a minute. Is it, is it 10% of gross income or 10% of net income? I don't want to get in trouble with our finance committee, but I actually think you can make a better case from the Old Testament that the tithe would have been on net income versus gross income. I know some of you are already thinking I like where this is going, but hold your horses because when, because when you come to the New Testament, you really don't see that much about tithing at all. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 23 when he's telling the religious leaders off for not being willing to give beyond their tithes when there were community needs. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul spends two whole chapters on Christian giving and he doesn't mention the tithe once and before any of us kind of heaves a sigh of relief about that you have to realize that Paul's intention here was not to give us a way to lower our giving it was to encourage us to increase our giving I'm guessing that Paul would have said if you if you want to use the tithe as a benchmark starting guide I'm perfectly okay with that but as the gospel of Jesus increasingly grips your heart You're going to want to move beyond the concept of tithe to the guideline of sacrifice. Paul provides this example of Christians who, quote, gave beyond their ability. So you start to think, what what does that actually look like in my life? What would it mean to give beyond my ability? And it seems to me it would surely mean that we start making sacrifices in our daily lifestyle. How much we spend on clothes, how much we spend on travel, on our homes, on technology, on eating out. So that here's the gospel principle that Paul seems to suggest is behind excellent giving: if our giving doesn't tangibly cut into our lifestyle, then we're not excelling in our giving. If our giving doesn't tangibly cut into our lifestyle, we're not excelling. In our giving. If we can't say, you know, here are things I used to do, or here are things I would do, but I don't do because I'm giving that money away, we're not excelling in giving. Some of you may be fans of the old TV show Everyone Loves Raymond. Uh, uh, Patricia Heaton, who played Ray's wife Deborah in that show, is a Christian. She's publicly spoken about how she had to really grapple with what it me- means to sacrificially give. At one stage in her career, Heaton was was reportedly pulling in $6 million a year. We may not be able to relate to that, but I think the principle of what she speaks, we can. Listen to what she said. She said, I struggle to keep it simple. Obedience, sacrifice, and modesty are not real popular buzzwords in Hollywood. An issue I'm dealing with lately is, do I have too much money, and am I being a good steward of it? In fact, I was talking to a friend about tithing, just giving your 10% as opposed to giving until it actually starts costing you something, which is what I think tithing is all about. Here's what excellent giving or excelling in giving is all about, giving beyond your ability such that it actually starts to cost you. So the New Testament, I think, raises the bar on our giving, and it's a challenge without a doubt. And for some of us, we may say, you know, my giving's nowhere near even 10%. And, and I think what, what today I hope you would do is to say, well, here's a benchmark you can start moving towards. How are you going to get even start to get closer to that? But even though Paul starts his appeal to the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonian Christians, it's not to guilt them into giving more. Churches are notorious for laying guilt trips on people to give more, but that's not. Paul's way. It's not the gospel way. But having given the example of excellent giving, look at what Paul writes next in verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, this is not an order I'm giving. It's more of a heart diagnosis. I mean, you and I know that God doesn't really need our money, right? I mean, it's not as if when the offering plate comes around a little later in this service, it's God's way of saying, you know, my coffers are getting a bit low right now. I really need you to do your bit to keep this kingdom building thing going. No, this is the God whom the psalmist says owns a thousand cattle on a a thousand hills. The point of which is that this whole world, this entire universe belongs to him. He owns it all already. So if that's the case, why does he ask us to give so generously, so sacrificially, so graciously? Well, it's for our benefit, not for his. It's for us to keep our own hearts in the right place, seeking the right treasure. Listen to this quote from the New Testament scholar, Crave Blomberg. It comes from his book, Christians in an Age of Wealth. He says, materialism may well be the biggest competitor with the God of Jesus Christ for the allegiance of human hearts in our world today. That's a pretty strong statement, but I I think he's probably right. This isn't a battle of the minds. This is a battle of the heart. It's played out in the field uh, of what we ultimately love. So that as Jesus puts it in in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there is your heart. The problem is that, that we've been seduced into believing that money and material things are the secrets to the good life, the way that life is meant to be. And money has blinded us at least in two ways. First of all, it tricks us into believing that it is what provides ultimate safety and security in life. It's the net that deceives us into believing that as long as we have this, then we're going to be okay. I might lose my job, but in the end, it's not going to matter because I've stashed away all this, these resources in my savings and my investments, so I feel secure. And that's actually why many of us may be afraid to, to give away our money to the levels that the, the Bible encourages us. It. It's not actually stinginess. It's actually fear. We think that money is what will make us safe, so if we were to give away 10% or more, we, we feel we'd be really vulnerable. And that's, that's true whether you have the money or you don't have the money. Money blinds us spiritually and tricks us to believe that it's what we need to have in order to be safe and secure. But secondly, money blinds us spiritually because it's simply, it's addictive. When you start to make a little more money than you had before, It allows you to buy things and do things that you haven't done before. Those things were luxuries because you've done without them for a long, long time. But now you have those things and you start to get used to having those things. Guess what? Those luxuries become necessities. Now you can't do without them and you end up feeling like you need more and more just to feel normal. And along with that, as your money increases, it enables you to live in different neighborhoods, to go to different places and... Soon you're associating with a higher socioeconomic bracket. Once you make it there, you mistakenly think, well, now I've made it. I'm going to be content and happy. Well, guess what? The problem is that in each bracket there are variations and there will always be people in that bracket that are better off than you. So you have to keep making more in order just to to keep up. Money is so deceptive because as you keep making more, you still have this constant feeling that you're financially strapped you're feeling that like you don't have enough money to give away to church or ministries or charities. And the reality is, of course we do. You and I are almost always better off than we think we are. But we've become addicts. We think we just need more just to survive. Our hearts have been deceived so that we love the wrong thing. That's why Jesus in the gospels keeps warning us that you need to be on your guard against greed. You need to be constantly plying yourself with questions, always suspicious of your own spending. So you ask yourself questions like by by buying this, what what am I communicating about about what I really love? Do I really need this? Do I really still need more? If I didn't buy this thing that I don't need, what could I give that money to instead? And if you're not at least willing to ask those questions, then it's probably a red flag that your ultimate love is misplaced in this life. So let's say you've tracked with me so far, you're thinking, okay. If I'm honest, yeah. I, if I examine my giving, it's not at the level where I could say I'm excelling in giving, and I can see how that might be because my loves are, are messed up a little bit. How do I, how do I shift from loving the wrong things to the right things? Well, you'll have the right. You'll love the right things by having a gospel-transformed heart, and specifically, as we're going to see through two things. First of all, through a new vision of the future, and secondly by grasping an exchange in the past. First, first, we need a new vision of the future. Allow me to take us back to the Gospel of Luke for a moment, but this time to chapter 16. Jesus' first half of chapter 16 tells a parable, the parable of the shrewd manager. If you've ever read that parable, you'll know it's one of Jesus' trickier parables to understand. Uh, but the main point that comes out of it is not complicated. It is this, that Jesus' followers should be shrewd in how they invest their money. And the question then would be, okay, well, what does it mean to make a shrewd investment according to Jesus? And he he pretty much answers that question in the second half of Luke 16, or right after the parable, at least. Uh, Luke 16, verse 9, this is the New Living Translation, says, here's the lesson, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Now, all of us want to invest shrewdly in life. We want to put our money in places where the return is going to be a good one. And Jesus says, do I have have an offer for you? I have an investment for you that will give an eternal return. I tell you, invest your money, he says, in making friends, because one day your money's going to be gone. You can't take it with you. But with all those friends, there's going to be one almighty welcome for you when you enter heaven. I think this is one of the most amazing pictures that Jesus kind of portrays in the Gospels because he seems to be inviting us to use our imaginations here a little bit, to imagine the scene in heaven when you arrive and there, kind of, there are people crammed around the entrance of heaven watching with joy and expectation and anticipation for the new arrivals. And, and one person says, look who's just arrived. And you say, who is it? They say it's that lady, what lady? That's the lady who bought me a Bible out of the blue and said, I want to read this with you every week, and it was through that reading that I became a Christian. And there's someone else who says, Look, you see that guy? He said, What guy? He's that he's from that church that gave sacrificially to support a new church plant in Gloucester County, New Jersey, of all places. It was it was through that church that I became a Christian you start to imagine the welcome, when, because when, you see, when you and I look at the church budget on a, at an annual meeting, you know, let, let's face it, it's numbers on a page. It's probably not too inspiring, at least for most of us. But the numbers in a church budget page will translate to a lot of welcomes in heaven from people whose lives are transformed in ways that you will not know until you get there. People say, I'm so glad you gave faithfully to your church. You had no idea the impact that had. It's through the children's ministry and the youth ministry in your church that I first came to hear about Jesus and that led me to put my faith in him years later. Or they might say, you know, I want to thank you for the way through your church that you gave me financial assistance in my time of of great need during during COVID. Or someone says, you know, you remember that Advent conspiracy campaign your church had in 2021, the one that's going to start in two weeks? You gave money to Fred and Dana Andre's work with international students at the University of Maryland through that. I was one of the students that Fred and Dana befriended and who then shared the gospel with that led me to become a Christian. Thank you. Thank you. Can you imagine that day? The number of welcomes. And you know what? Here's the good news. There are so many welcomes already in store for members and regular attenders of this church because of your generous giving already over years up to this point. But just think of the even more welcomes in store if we are to continue to practice the grace of giving in the months and years ahead. Loving the right things comes in part from a new vision of the future. But secondly, we'll love the right things by grasping an exchange in the past. When I was growing up in Northern Ireland, there were all sorts of jokes about Skoda cars. They've sort of sorted themselves out since then, but here are the kind of jokes that went around. What do you call a Skoda with twin exhausts? A wheelbarrow? Why why do Skodas have heated rear windows to keep your hands warm while you're pushing? Or, or this, when a guy goes into an auto parts store and says, can I have a gas cap for my Skoda? The man behind the desk thinks for a moment and says, yeah, that sounds like a fair exchange to me. <laughs> for you and me to become excellent givers, we need to exchange our love of money for a love of Jesus and his kingdom. And Paul says that exchange happens when you grasp the exchange that Jesus undertook for you. Look at what he writes at verses 7 and 9. But as you excel in everything, see that you excel in this act of grace also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You heard it in our words of encouragement. You heard it in Becky's reading. You hear it again here. because this is this is the crux of what we're talking about what is paul talking about here he's saying that prior to coming to earth jesus had enjoyed with the father and the spirit all things all things the universe belongs to him you don't get much richer than that but when jesus came to this earth he literally lived in poverty during his ministry he had no address he had no home But his economic poverty was, in a sense, a picture of what was going to happen to him on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus plunges into spiritual poverty. He he lost his power. He lost his glory. He lost his relationship with the Father. He lost his ultimate treasure. He liquidated everything he had for us, the spiritually poor. Why did he do that? He did it to pay the penalty for, amongst other things, our greed and our love of money and material things so that we could be forgiven for that and inherit eternal life. That only by paying that penalty could we indeed be forgiven and enter the kingdom. It was an act of sheer radical grace on Jesus's part. And Paul points to this exchange because because he says, here's the deal. If your money is your ultimate good thing, Which you'll know by how much it consumes your thinking and your planning. How much of your happiness is built on your latest purchase. How hard it is for you to give your money away sacrificially. If your money is your ultimate thing. It's because you have not experienced this radical grace. You lack the the inner wealth of knowing that Jesus was willing to give up everything for you. He was willing to pay anything for you. And Paul is saying, if you know that, if you know how much you're treasured, then you know what it does to your view of money? Your money just becomes money. It stops being your source of security. It stops being your source of beauty. It stops being your means to significance. It just becomes money. And when it just becomes money, you feel so liberated to give it away. You're liberated to give it to the poor, to give it to ministry, to give it to and through this church and other organizations, you start to love blessing others through your generosity instead of building your identity through what you have. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. You can love Jesus or you can love money, but you cannot love both at the same time. If Jesus is not your ultimate love, you need to exchange. So what difference does it make to know what you now know, maybe a little bit more than you knew 30 minutes ago? I conclude with this story that some of you have heard before. It was uh, actually told by Haddon Robinson, my preaching professor. He's now gone to glory. Someone needs to keep telling this story. And so every few years I tell this story because some of you haven't heard it. And I say it with apologies to Sonia and all cat lovers amongst us because the story goes like this. A man in New York City had a wife who had a cat actually the cat had her. She loved the cat, she stroked it, she combed its fur, she fed it, she pampered it. The man detested the cat. This is not autobiographical, I just want to say. The man detested the cat. He was allergic to cat hair. He hated the smell of the litter box. He couldn't stand the scratching on the furniture. He couldn't get a good night's sleep because the cat kept jumping up on the bed. And so one weekend when his wife was out of town, he this is just how the story goes. He puts the cat in a bag with some rocks. He dumps it in the Hudson River, and he utters a joyful goodbye to the cat. Well, his wife returns, she can't find the cat anywhere. She's overwhelmed with, with, with grief. And, she, and so he says to her, dear, my dear, I know how much that cat meant to you. I'm going to post that our cat is missing on social media, and I'm going to give a reward of $500 to anyone who can find our cat. No cat shows up, so a few days later, says, honey, buttercup, you mean more to me than anything on this earth. If that cat is so precious to you, it's precious to me. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll raise the ante. We're going to increase the reward to $1,000. Friend saw the post, said, you must be crazy. There isn't a cat in this world that's worth $1,000. To which the man replied, well, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. When you know what we know, when you know what the future holds and what exchange was made for us in the past, we as Christ Church can afford to be radically generous. When we know what we know, when we know the gospel, we can afford to be generous because this is who God has made us. This is us. Let's pray. other passages like this hit a nerve because all of us uh, have an interesting relationship with our money, our finances. For uh, some, some of us, it's just, it's a struggle, it's hard, it's been a hard thing all our lives to know how to relate correctly to our money. And we confess that we have let it define us in more ways than we perhaps are aware. We've sought to find our identity through what we have. And yet here is an invitation to find our true identity, to find true meaning in you so that you change the way we think about ourselves, we think about others, we think about this world, and you create a people of generous, radical uh, giving, people who are generous at the very heart. We pray, Lord, that we're not being guilted into doing what you call us to do but we our hearts are transformed by what Jesus has done for us that he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich give us ears to hear we pray for we ask it in Jesus name amen